electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. All right, thanks very much, Scott. I'm Dominic Hsu in for a Kelly Evans today, and here's what's ahead on this Friday. A blockbuster, and I mean blockbuster jobs report, the market taking it in stride. So is good news truly now good news again, or could the Fed apply a bigger break and put a stop to the 2023 rally? We'll debate that question. Plus, Apple's rough report, the biggest quarterly revenue decline since 2016, and Tim Cook sees more pain ahead So why is one of our guests so bullish on that stock? He joins us to make the case. And then media stocks have been on fire so far this year. And who's leading the way may surprise you. We've got to look at what's behind the gains and whether they can keep going from here. But we begin with today's big market reversals and Bob Bassani with those numbers. Bob. And Dom, this is quite a remarkable turnaround and a rally, frankly. You'd think Disappointing tech earnings on top of a blockbuster jobs report was sort of quashed the hopium around the soft landing, but not really. The Dow was essentially flat today, but it, we're up for the week. The Dow had a really rough week. The S&P 500 uh, just refuses to keep going down at this point. Uh, it's up about 9% for the year, and the Nasdaq is up 16% for the year. Tech stocks are still doing well. I just want to show you the tech earnings, the, three, the big three on the tech earnings. Uh, all disappointed to some extent. But look, Apple is now positive. What's remarkable is Apple's up 16% just going into the earnings, already a little pricey. You'd think with the disappointment, particularly around China, it'd be down today, but it's not. And now it's, Apple is up almost 20% this year. That is a remarkable one run. Even speculative tech stuff, the Kathy Wood stuff, uh, is up double digits this week, and some of it even more. You'd think it'd be down a little bit today, flat to down. Coinbase was uh, slightly up throughout the day. It's up 30% this week. Roku's up about 15% this week. Everything else, double-digit gains essentially for the week, even flat to slightly down uh, today. I want to show you how powerful this rally is. The S&P 500 is off to its best start from January to parts of February since the 1920s. It's the fifth best start since the 1920s, up 9%. And you got to go back, look at those years. Those are pretty rare years to see up double digits here. Uh, Earnings, we are exactly at the halfway point on earnings. So the good news is revenues are still strong, still growing because they have pricing power. Earnings, though, down 2.7%, and they're continuing to come down. This is the big story. If you take a look for the rest of the year, Q1, Q2, they keep lowering the earnings estimates for those two quarters. They're down. And you can see, guys, all of the hope here, this is the soft landing, is in the third and essentially the fourth quarter. That's the market believing at this point that we're going to make it through any kind of slowdown that we have and have a rebound in earnings in the fourth quarter. Back to you. All right, the consensus seems to be, Bob, that second half story for sure. Stick around, please. Let's talk more about what's driving to the strong markets today and the strong jobs report and what it means for the economy and for the markets and for the Fed. We have CNBC chief economics reporter Steve Leisman joining us right now, along with Michelle Girard, head of the U.S. markets over at NatWest, also a CNBC contributor, also the CIO of Bleakley Group, Peter Bookfar, also a CNBC contributor as well. Uh, Thank all of you for being here. This, This panel needs to help investors right now figure out what's going on because we thought with the kinds of numbers that we saw 
that you would see a market that would give back some of the big gains from yesterday. Steve, can you take us through the hits, runs, and errors and what exactly this means? On balance, it seems like it should be negative, maybe positive. I don't know. I was hoping this panel was going to help me figure out what the heck's going on, Dom. It really is something out there. Um, It's a a job number that came in 2.7 times uh, the estimate, which you don't see all that often. But there was something else inside the report that I thought was really interesting. Thought back to December, Dom, and there were a bunch of things that made people kind of confident that the economy was slowing. Uh, You had the work week contracting. People talked about temporary help uh, getting down to zero or job growth because that could be a leading indicator. Then, of course, the ISM service sector went down and went uh, went negative. All those things reversed today. Hours worked back up. Uh, the uh, temporary help thing back up strongly. ISM services is positive again. So if it was just one thing in this report, if somebody could give me a quirk or a statistical thing that caused this thing to be... Uh, it, as strong as or, or as strong as it is, I would feel a little more comfortable. Right now, I have to look at this number, Dom, and think the economy is maybe accelerating again, despite calls for uh, GDP numbers that are below the the, the, the level of one percent. So, Michelle, this is a, so you're you're the economist. You, you looked at these numbers. You saw the report. Are you as confused as the rest of us right now about what's going on here? And by the way, does this data? significantly take the odds of a recession lower? It it certainly has pushed back uh, the timing of a recession. We still have a recession in our forecast, but whereas we thought it would be predominantly a first half of 2023 story, it now clearly looks like it's going to be delayed, and we've pushed our expectations for negative GDP growth to the second half of the year. I mean, stepping back, I I don't know if I think, I don't see, I don't know if I think the economy is reaccelerating, but it clearly isn't decelerating in a straight line and as sharply as it appeared to be in the fourth quarter. We we really seem to be losing momentum throughout the fourth quarter, culminating, as you said, with those December numbers that were kind of through and through very disappointing. I think that this, you know, suggests that it's not going to necessarily be a straight line and it's not going to be as perhaps as weak as as soon as we thought. It's going to continue to be sort of a a gradual deceleration. And I think for the Fed or or for markets, there's still a confidence that the Fed has done an awful lot. They don't necessarily have to do a whole lot more. People aren't going to be revising up their terminal Fed funds forecast. So if you've got inflation coming down, you think most of the Fed action is done and you're still seeing the economy holding up, I think that's how you get to a situation where the markets really like this news. Okay, so so Peter, you and I have been looking at each other and you've been you you seem like you've got a little bit of certainty in your eyes about whether you think this is a a clearer read or not. Has this clarified anything for you about the U.S. economy or or have things just gotten murkier? Well, the the jobs number itself is clear as mud, but everything else that I look at seems to be pretty clear. What's so interesting about the number is it is such an outlier to such a great extent that I don't know whether to rely on it. The household survey within the overall number, that can be explained. There was a population adjustment. If you take out that adjustment, there was only 84,000 jobs added in the month. Which, but I can't explain the establishment survey. But I look at the ISM services number today. The, un- the employment component was exactly 50, implying really no 
real net hiring. You have the S&P Global Services PMI that said there has been a notable halt to hiring. We see the continuing claims data being elevated. I listen to a lot of company conference calls and a lot of just general cautiousness, cautiousness and a limit to hiring. So the number came out of left field, and I can't have that yet alter my opinion on what is clearly a slowing economy and one that I think is in a recession. Already in a recession. Manufacturing's in a recession. Housing's in a recession. Consumer spending in November, December on a real basis was negative. We're essentially there. So how then, Bob, and I'll, I'll, I'll turn to you for this one, where is the disconnect between the markets and that narrative that Peter is explaining right now? Because he seems to have data to back it up. Right. I, I agree the jobs report is confusing. But when I'm confused, I just look at the market and try to say, what is the market telling us? So I see startlingly strong jobs report. I see rates up today and I see the stock market holding in there really well, considering the news and particularly disappointing tech earnings on top of that. So this seems to be implying that the market may be comfortable with the idea that it's kind of wrong on the rates. They're expecting the Fed to cut rates a little bit towards the end of the year. They may be wrong on that. But if the economy is so strong at this point, it may be able to withstand higher for longer, even at 5% by December. And we could indeed get the soft landing. That seems to be the way the market is reading this data right now. Michelle, I'm watching you <laughs> nod, possibly in agreement here. So, so, so take us through your thinking. Yeah, I, I think that that I think that that's really it. I think that the, um, the you know, as I said, I don't think anyone looked at these numbers that were, again, unequivocally strong and starting to say, wow, the Fed is going to have to take rates a whole lot higher than we thought. It, it, it is, as you probably said, Bob, it's, it's more of, OK, at, at the least uh, the worst, we may not get the rate cuts uh, in the second half of the year that we've got priced in. But as you said, if the economy is holding up better, then that might be OK. We might get into this point where, you know, you achieve this soft landing. And as I said, when when you step back, as long as inflation keeps coming down and that, of course, is, is the wild card. You know, can you have these kinds of strong employment numbers, continued strong labor market and see inflation make it all the way to two percent? But as long as it's moving in the right direction, signs that the economy is holding up don't necessarily have to mean it's bad news for the equity market. Steve, hold on for a second, because I know that I, I know that I can see you chopping at the bit. Peter as well here has has a response here. Do, do you feel as though Bob Bob's reading is correct, that Michelle has got it right with regard to that connection between markets and the economy right now? Well, to me, when you look at the two biggest headaches for the market in 2022 was 40 year highs in inflation and the most aggressive monetary response in 40 years. Well, now that inflation's rolling over, the Fed's almost done raising interest rates. We've sort of relieved those headaches. So to me, that's the easy explanation for why we're rallying. But I just think that this is just one battle won and not the bear market war won, because now we have to deal with the economic consequences of all these rate hikes and deal with now what's an earnings recession, as Bob pointed out, that maybe Q4 is the beginning of. Steve, has, has the expectation changed? Has this been a significant enough event in your mind and with futures markets the way that they trade? to indicate that the trajectory for the Fed is somehow different because of this? Um, what's happened is the market has taken about a 20 basis point step towards the Fed. When I look at the Fed market gap, in other words, what's the pricing for the end of 2023? Uh, they were 75 basis points uh, apart 
And now they're 55 basis points apart. The Fed hasn't moved. The market moved more towards the Fed with an idea that maybe there is a, a, a less, of a, less of, a, of a cut built in than the market had previously thought. But I want to go back to what Peter said. Um, Peter, I, I just can tell you that let's say this number is half wrong. Let's say it's 250,000. There is just no way the NBER is going to call January a recession, uh, even given what happened in December. And I would just caution people. There are a lot of marquee names out there that have laid off people. At the same time, when I look at the leisure and hospitality business adding 128,000 workers, I'm not confused by that. When I see the, the hospital system, the healthcare system, adding 79,000 workers, I'm not confused by that. And when I see local state, edu state education being up by 75,000, I'm not confused by that either. These are places where there are definite needs for jobs. These are some industries that are running below their pandemic level. So I, I just think that when we try to overlay models of other recessions and downturns on top of what's happening now, we get confused. And I know, Peter, when you get confused, you listen to the music play. <laughs> All right, Peter, I'm going to give you one comment and then we're going to move on. I like the music reference. So, yes, the labor market is unique in that it's still hanging in there. But that also tells me that with economic growth faltering at the same time the labor market is strong, that means productivity is not good and profit margins are going to continue to decline. OK, Michelle, thank you very much, Steve, Bob as well. Peter Bookvar, please stick around here. Uh, we're going to have another conversation for sure. Peter, stick around again. Stocks are lower right now. Again, moving towards session lows right now, but on pace for weekly gains. A different story, though, for commodities. Natural gas is down about 2% today, more than 20% this week alone. U.S. benchmark oil prices rallying today, but still down about 2% this week. Gold prices also on pace to end the week lower as well. In spite of all of this, our next guest says commodities are a good place for investors to look right now. If you take a look at the moves, natural gas is the market one. You've got to go all the way back to December of 2020 to see some of the prices that we've seen with regard to natural gas, despite the fact that in the Northeast, we're going to have a possibly, possibly Arctic-like cold spell coming up. So if you look at those commodities complexes over the last week, the last month or so, can we really feel good about some of those moves that we've been seeing? Let's talk more about this with Elizabeth Burton. She's the client investment, strate uh, client investment strategist with Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Uh, Elizabeth, we've been trying to kind of make sense of all of this commodities wise and everything else. It sure seems like if you look at agricultural commodities, if you look at energy commodities, especially places like natural gas, it's not I, I wouldn't say deflation, but it certainly doesn't look like inflation. Right. It's not deflation, but it's not inflation either. What exactly does that tell you about how, how the markets are setting up for, for the outlook for inflation? Well, look, my comments on commodities and why I think that they would be helpful in a portfolio are, are less of a reflection on that and more of a reflection on what we can do to protect our portfolios going into next year. If you think about last year, about 95 percent of assets were correlated with the equity markets, which mean basically dollar cash is the only thing you could really run to. This year, we think that there's going to be a bull market in oil, for example, and we do think there are places where you can run and hide is probably the wrong word, but look for protection. And part of that is in the commodities market. Part of that is coming from the China reopening and, you know, sort of the abatement, at least for now, in the energy of crisis in Europe. OK, so, so China is obviously a very big part of the story because they're the world's second biggest economy, the biggest importer of oil out there. 
the second biggest user of it to the United States. But is the entire commodity story about just energy right now? It's gotten so much attention. But what about places like in metals? People used to talk about copper on the China reopening. Can we, talk, can we talk about those types of commodities in the same breath as we talk about oil and net gas? Well, I don't think you can put an entire asset class into one bucket and just say in general, you should just go out there and buy commodities. And I don't think that we advise any of our institutional clients to just buy you know, a blanket basket there and hope for the same outcome. We're not projecting everything's going to go up you know, double digits there. But I do think there'll be winners and losers from the China reopening and from the importers and exporters story around that. So I think you can pick your spots and I think there will be opportunities to earn a return there that you haven't seen in a long time. Part of the problem, though, is there are a lot of portfolios out there that do not have strategic allocations to commodities. And that's very hard to add to in the short term, especially if you're confused, like many folks are out there, what commodities to add at this point. In your estimation, how many of those client portfolios out there, in your expert opinion, are underinvested in things like commodities? I would say the shift probably happened about a decade ago where a lot of large institutional investors backed out of their strategic allocation to commodities. And as you probably know, the public pension world, for example, it's very hard to make tactical decisions quickly. And so I would say very few. I could probably name a handful that have strategic allocations to commodities. So, Peter, the commodity story, is it enough when you see charts for things like natural gas, when you see charts for things like wheat and corn, when you see charts for things like even egg prices, which have been sky high through all of last year, coming down? Is it enough for you to call a peak in inflation? No, because I, to add to what Elizabeth said, I think the China reopening is a huge deal. I mean, this is 17% of the world's population that has been locked up for three years. The oil consumption in China in 2022 on a, on a per day barrel basis fell to the lowest level since 1990. In 2023, that demand for daily crude oil will go to a record high. At the same time, we still have all these supply issues with getting this stuff out of the ground. Not necessarily um, the ability to get out of the ground, it's the willingness to get out of the ground that has obviously changed. So I think that the, we, we should treat the China reopening no different than how we reopened here, how Europe reopened, how the whole world reopened. They want to make up for lost time. And I think that consumer demand is going to lead to much higher commodity prices. And when I see those charts with these prices lower, it tells me that, okay, we've had the pullback and it's time for them to go higher again. Elizabeth, in a former life, you ran one <laughs> of these pension systems for the state of Hawaii. Yeah. So you were a buy side investment officer, chief investment officer, and now you're kind of showing the other people in the buy side what exactly they should be looking at. Sure. So what are they missing right now? What, what is the institutional community missing right now about the economic narrative and the market narrative? We just had a big discussion about the disconnect right now right. between the jobs numbers and what the market reaction is or could be. Sure. I think missing is probably a really tough thing to say. What I would say is that they're a little bit conflicted. The portfolios in a hard landing scenario and a soft landing scenario probably need to look a little bit different. So I think where they're trying to focus right now is where are some of those assets that might be able to hold up in either sort of scenario. So it's not that they're missing anything. It's just a very tough position to have been in after a decade, two decades, you know, of the, of the past environment we had, especially on the, on the bond side, as they play such a large role in, in public pension portfolios. If you look at that bond mix, people called about the death of 60, 40, 60 stocks, 40 bonds. Right. Do you still feel as though the outlook for both of those assets could be positive in 2023? 
Look, I think maybe the comment bonds are back might be early. I think, especially what we've seen today in the jobs number, there might be some more shoes to drop here, right? Um, and especially globally. Uh, central banks across the whole globe are in a different position than maybe the U.S. central bank is, right? Um, so that's the first thing. 60-40 uh, isn't generally how large public pension funds allocate, but it is very difficult to add other new asset classes into that mix. What I would say is they're trying to pick their spots, but they are super overweight cash right now. And right now, being overweight cash is really expensive because, to your point, there are opportunities in short-dated fixed-income bonds where you can earn that incremental yield now. All right. Elizabeth Burton, Peter Bookvar, thank you both very much for the conversation. We appreciate it. Thanks, Brad. Thanks. All right. Speaking of asset classes, we've got a news alert on what's happening with real estate, specifically mortgage rates. And Diana Olick has the details there. Hi, Diana. Hi, Dom. Yeah, what the Fed chairman gaveth on Wednesday, the jobs report taketh away today. Mortgage rates just jumped back into the 6% range after falling into the high fives yesterday for the first time since early September. Take a look. The average rate on the 30-year fix flew back over 6 to 6.19%, according to Mortgage News Daily. This after the jobs report sent bond yields soaring. The mortgage rates, of course, loosely follow the yield on the 10-year Treasury. Now, 20 basis points may not seem like a whole lot, but on a $500,000 home with 20% down, the monthly payment just jumped back up by $50 in one day. Also, these numbers tend to have emotional consequences. Remember, the 7% range last fall caused a steep drop in home buyer demand, and just dropping into the high sixes in December brought some buyers back. We saw it in pending home sales and reports from the home builders. 5% could have been a nice boost going into the spring housing market. This is not to say we won't see it again, but it was dumb, mighty brief. All right, and still uncertain for sure for the outlook there. Diana Olick, thank you very much for the update on mortgage rates. Coming up on the show... Apple's on pace for its highest close and best week since September, despite its first earnings miss in nearly seven years. Does today's move suggest the stock is almost recession-proof? That's coming up next. Plus, it's been full stream ahead for media stocks to start the year. See what I did there. But a lot of these names are still way off their recent highs. Can the rally roll on or will it run out of steam? We'll debate that. And as we head out to break, let's get a quick check on the markets right now. The Dow's down 105 points, one-third of 1%. The S&P 500 is right about 41.50, down about two-thirds of 1%, 30 points. And the composite index from the NASDAQ, down almost one full percent, 113 points, 12,086. The exchange is back after this commercial break. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Apple shares are up nearly 3% right now after falling as much as 5% right after the opening bell. Initially, though, on those weak Q1 results, the tech giant is posting its largest quarterly revenue decline since 2016. Also warned that next quarter could look the same. But our next guest is not concerned. He's got a buy rating on the stock and says this report does nothing to derail his long-term investment thesis. Joining us now is Martin Yang. He's a senior analyst over at Oppenheimer, along with our own very our own Steve Kovac, who covers technology for CNBC. Uh, Martin, Steve, thank you very much for joining us here. Uh, maybe Steve, I will start with you to kind of take us through the, I guess, thesis for why we saw the kind of reversal that we did. It was a disappointing result, but it still seems as though traders and investors have this urge to want to buy Apple when it goes on sale like it did. What exactly were the fundamental parts of that story for Apple in its earnings report? Yeah, for sure, uh, Dom. So a couple of things here. Uh, on the guidance that Luca Maestri, the CFO of Apple, gave on the analyst call last night, he talked about, like to your point, that most of the segments are going to be down. That includes Mac, that includes iPhone, and so forth. But iPhone's not going to be down as much as it was in the December quarter. So I think people are really glomming onto that data point saying, okay, things are going to be bad, but not horrible. And also keep in mind, Dom, Apple, as you know, as demand collapses for consumer electronics, especially PCs, Apple actually outperformed a lot of its peers, gaining market share actually last quarter as everyone else struggled. That's according to IDC. On top of that, there's another positive story they're trying to tell around services. They talked about the install base of two 2 billion uh, active devices. That means that's every one of those people is an opportunity to sell more subscriptions, to sell more app store uh, sales, to sell and, and so and advertising within the iPhone. So there's optimism around that too. They, in fact, despite all these headwinds and services, Dom, they set a record revenue number. It's one of the only segments that they were able to beat on. So that's where some of this optimism is coming from, despite the first miss in almost seven years. Okay, so Martin, I, this is a, a fundamental story that you, you have to pour through. You've got a lot of models on your side of things, inputs that go into them. What exactly in this kind of generally disappointing report has not changed your mind? Why is it that you've seen some of the slowing growth that we've seen, yet you still maintain that bullish kind of longer term outlook on Apple as a stock? Yeah, so out of the results, uh, something you can quantify is really better than expected service revenues. And we have known, gone through almost a year where App Store uh, revenue payout to developers has stalled. And that's largely um, due to the much uh, lower um, transactions um, through mobile games. And yet Apple still delivered better than expected service results driven by Apple's own services like iCloud, like Apple Play, uh, like Apple Pay and Apple TV. So there's a largely a underlying story still gone. It is uh, largely unnoticed by most investors is that Apple is um, paying less attention or less emphasis on the app economy and instead pivot um, the service revenue growth um, towards its own first-party content and services. And that's something it will have very positive long-term effect, driving the margins, driving a more sustainable service revenues um, um, despite some of the regular pr pressures put on the App Store. And that's one quantified um, evidence you can see. The other are, you know, still they are making record um, 
active install base on emerging markets. And that gave us more confidence on the longer-term durability of the hardware growth and the hardware install base. We continue to expect Apple to take share very, very consistently in the forward years. So that's a good point. Martin, uh, iPhone revenues, we always talk about iPhone as a segment that that becomes the bulk, right, of, of the Apple results. We always have to focus on there. But to your point as well, services revenue has now jumped up the leaderboard, so to speak, to take over a pretty decent second place, uh, better than in terms of Mac sales, better than iPad sales, than Mac sales put together. That services component is now growing. But at 6.4% year over year in this first quarter for the, for the company, does that represent a slowdown in your mind that should be worrisome from a valuation standpoint? Um, it's worrisome in the near term um, because... Um, it's still very much exposed to how consumers decide to spend uh, with their apps, and particularly games. Gaming, by our estimates, accounts for well over 60% of the app store revenues. So, and that's a kind of discretionary spending. Um, and when you go under pressure, uh, seeing all the headlines that are worrisome, you will spend less on games and uh, other uh, in-app purchases. So that will be continue to be headwinds into 2023. Uh, but again, if we stretch the timeline to uh, maybe three to five years, um, that will be a much lesser impact comparing to the potential growth Apple could have with its own services. All right. Uh, Steve, last word to you. Just a few moments left here. What's the big thing that you're watching in this current quarter for Apple? Yes, uh, talk about, let's talk about India because that's something Tim Cook brought up. He hasn't really talked in such bullish terms about India for a while. And he really said, I mean, to quote him directly, I'm very bullish on India is what he said on the call, meaning they've tried this before, you know, six or seven or eight years ago to really break into that consumer market in India. But there's not really that middle class there that they've seen uh, had success with in China when it was an emerging market. But it seems things have changed and Tim Cook sees different uh, things on the ground there and they're about to open up some new retail stores, not to mention all the manufacturing uh, that's increasing over in China. So I'm really paying attention to that India story, Don. Martin Yang at Oppenheimer. Thank you very much, Steve Kovac as well. Have a nice weekend, guys. Thank you. All right. Now, remember, as the world's largest company, Apple's performance affects an entire ecosystem. Its suppliers specifically take the iPhone, for example. The company's responsible for the face ID technology, the camera, 5G wireless, chips, you name it. They're all watching those iPhone demand numbers as they figure out their next move from their own business standpoint. Another one of Apple suppliers, the audio chip maker Cirrus Logic, is hitting an all-time high today. After beating earnings estimates of its own, it's up 40% so far this year, and Apple accounts for around 80% of its total sales. Cirrus Logic, very levered to what happens over at Apple, up 25% over the last 12 months. Still ahead on the show, office workers are doing something they haven't done since the start of the pandemic. They're showing up to the office. Yeah, they're at their desks. So we'll look at what's driving the return to work and what it means for the commercial real estate market. And as we head out to break, take a look at the Dow heat map with Home Depot, 3M, and Honeywell, the worst performers on the day. American Express is leading the way higher. The exchange is back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. 
From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets right now are all in the red. Now, they are off the session lows, but at one point the Dow was off 220 points. We're down about 165 right now, one half of 1%. The S&P 500 still above 4,100, 4,138 the last trade there, down one full percent. And the NASDAQ composite, the underperformer as big tech kind of weighs on things, down about a one and a third percent, 157 points, 12,043 the last trade there. Now, I mentioned that NASDAQ trade. Let's check out those mega cap technology stocks. Apple, by the way, is the only one that's in the green right now after a big reversal. It was down 5% at one point today. Amazon, by the way, is on pace for its worst day since November on the heels of its disappointing earnings results. Now, here are some of the movers this hour as well. Clorox is leading the S&P 500 after posting its biggest earnings beat in over a decade, with earnings per share coming in 51 percent above consensus estimates. Gross profit margins were up three percentage points year over year as well. So Clorox shares so fresh, so clean, up seven and a half percent. Now let's send things over to Tyler Matheson, who's got a CNBC News update. Oh, Hi, fresh Ty. and clean. Those are my middle names. Here's what's happening at this hour, Dom. Uh, new polling shows public trust in the police has sunk now following the brutal fatal beating of Tyree Nichols by police officers in Tennessee. Only 39% of people say they are confident that police are trained properly to avoid using excessive force. The poll also found just 41% say police treat whites and blacks equally. The Triple Crown winning horse trainer Bob Baffert is in court today. He's trying to overturn a suspension so he can run horses at this year's Kentucky Derby. At Churchill Downs, the home of the Derby, Churchill uh, imposed a ban after one of Baffert's horses failed a drug test after winning the Derby in 2021. The horse was disqualified. And the Agriculture Department proposing new nutrition standards for school meals. They include the first ever limits on added sugars and a significant cut in the amount of sodium in meals. If approved, the new rules would be phased in over the next six years. Dom, back to you. All right, Tyler Matheson, thank you very much for that. Coming up on the show, is 2023 going to be the golden age for municipal bonds? The tax-free asset class coming off its worst year ever. But one investor seems sees optimism returning to that market. We'll get the bonds to buy after this quick break. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to the exchange. Muni bond outflows hitting a record high last year with more than $100 billion pulled from the market. And while this week saw $362 million in outflows, three of the first five weeks of the year have seen actual inflows. Our next guest sees optimism returning in munis and says the, quote, golden age of public finance will push forward. Joining us now is Tom Koslick, the head of municipal strategies and credit over at Hilltop Securities. Tom, it's good to see you again. When you say golden age of anything... I think of some real positivity. What's got you so bullish about that big muni bond market? You know, the golden age in my mind started back in March of 2021 with that uh, almost $2 trillion of uh, federal aid. About $650 billion went went directly to public finance sectors. And that's really what started the golden age. And 
Uh, I think that that's going to continue into 2023. I think that overall uh, rating upgrades are going to outpace downgrades this year, uh, although I do think that we peaked. Okay, so if, if this is the case, where are the opportunities? I'm, I'm going to peg you down and, yeah. and say, no, you know, yeah. is, it in, is it in GEO, general obligation type yeah. bonds? Is it in revenue type bonds tied to projects? Uh, it, it, which states are out there? So yeah. what exactly, how exactly do, do, do investors go about constructing that kind of a portfolio? Yeah, so because we're uh, at or near the peak, one of the things that I've been talking to investors about for the last several months, and I'm going to continue talking about this, is that this is the perfect time to start to trade out of uh, state and local government credits that uh, were either structurally imbalanced before COVID, before that relief rolled in, and or uh, are likely to be structurally imbalanced in the next year or two. One of the things, even though I'm very, uh, I'm pretty positive about uh, the overall credit situation, one of the things I'm concerned about is I'm concerned that there are going to be situations where state and local governments and other entities uh, are not going to kind of clamp down with their spending. Uh, that uh, federal aid is not going to continue. It's there. It's helping them get through some uncertainty like work from home and these types of things and uh, higher inflation, wage inflation. Uh, but I really am concerned that there are going to be some entities that aren't going to be uh, structurally balanced coming out of the next year or two. Uh, one of the other things that I have a very strong conviction about and have for several months, I've been talking about mass transit for several months now. And since I started really talking about mass transit, maybe around last summer, uh, mass transit has performed very well from an investment perspective. There's still all kinds of headline risk because of the work from home uh, stories, because you, you know, we see the castle data systems numbers, we see the transit uh, usage numbers, they're all down and they're likely to stay down. But from an investment perspective, I think that mass transit is too important to fail. And Tom, before we let you go, that's your pick, mass transit. You think it's an outperformer. I want to get your macro take, big picture. What is going to be the taxing environment that you are assuming the U.S. will be under in the coming five to 10 years? And does that factor in to some of the municipal bond type thesis that you are trying to tell investors? That's a, so on the one hand, uh, it's hard to look out that many years. Uh, one of the things that I'm really concerned about in 2024 is that there could be, uh, one of the things that could evolve as a threat to the municipal bond tax exemption like we saw in October and November of 2017 where uh, private activity bonds almost lost the ability to use the tax exemption and uh, the public finance community did lose the ability to use uh, tax exempt bonds for advance your fundings. And so that's one of the things from a tax perspective I'm really looking forward to over the next like two or three years. All right. Tom Koslick over at Hilltop Securities. Thank you very much. Have a nice weekend, sir. Thanks, Tom. You too. All right. Coming up, if you are banking on the end of New York City and their office buildings, you may have another thing coming. So what exactly is driving workers, to Tom Koslick's point, to come back to their desks and maybe even take mass transit? That story is coming up next. Welcome back. The layoffs ripping through the tech and finance industries have shifted more power to employers and they want workers back in the office. Robert Frank joins us now with a look at how that's shifting the real estate landscape. Robert. Well, Dom, you are leading by example. You're in that office five days a week, inspiring all the rest of us and the CEOs of Starbucks, Disney and other companies saying, be more like Dom, get back to the office more. 
and the workers are listening. For the first time since the pandemic, a majority of office employees in the 10 biggest cities are now back in the office. Office use now at 50.4%, so just a slim majority there. It does vary by city. In Austin, Texas, 68% of workers are back. In tech-heavy San Jose, California, it's still only 41%. You look at New York, we're at 48%, and among big employers in New York, it could be even higher. A survey of the city's largest companies by the Partnership for New York City found that 52% of Manhattan office workers are now back. Now, for most workers, that means three days a week. Only 10% are fully remote now. That's down from 16% in the fall. Employers say the new normal for Manhattan office space will be around 56%. So we may not get better or much better than 56%. You look at the industries with the highest office rates, well, it's real estate, finance, and law. And among the lowest is, yep, tech. Labor experts say layoff fears may be driving many workers back to the office. Starbucks told employees they need to be back at least three days a week. Disney's Bob Iger is saying... We want you back at least four days a week starting in March. Dom? All right, so it's interesting. That Castle Systems survey with the 50.4% of people back in the office caught my attention this week as well. Can you put it in the broader context of how that's shaping that commercial real estate market overall? Was it already bullish kind of going into this? Had it already anticipated this? Or are we due for a stabilization period? How does it look? It was very bullish going into this. And if you look at the Manhattan real estate, if you look at the commercial side, we still have about 100 million square feet of office space. And the projections were that this would, you know, we would get back to 60 or 70 percent. It's now clear that the lasting effects of the pandemic means that we're not going to get much above 55, maybe 56, 57 percent. And so that has big implications, as you were just talking about, for commuters, for the subway, for all the sort of commuter economy and tax system that New York City is built on being a business district, being a five days a week commuter system. So the whole city is still in denial, as are many cities, about just how lasting that is. I mean, it says something that three years into this, we are celebrating today just making 50 percent nationwide. It took a long time, Robert, for sure. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. We'll see you soon. Have a nice weekend, sir. Still ahead on the show, media stocks posting monster gains to start the year. Warner Brothers Discovery is up about 67% after a dismal 2022. So what's behind the sentiment shift in media? That's coming up next. Welcome back to The Exchange. After a tough 2022, media stocks are staging a comeback with the big names all up double digits to start the year. Warner Brothers Discovery leading the pack up 67 percent. Paramount Global not too far behind. It's up 48 percent. Charter Communications up a cool 20 percent. And CNBC's parent company, Comcast, is up 15 percent. So let's dive into what's driving the moves with Jeff Kilberg, the CEO of KKM Financial, along with our own Julia Borston and CNBC.com reporter Alex Sherman. They both, of course, are experts on the media business. Julia, let's start with you. Uh, How much of this is true bullishness and how much of this is just the fact that these companies got smoked pretty much in 2022? 
Yeah, Dom, I don't think you could look at the performance year to date without looking at what happened in 2022. And these are pretty much across the board stocks that really suffered over the, the course of 2022. And now they are rebounding. There are a couple of catalysts we're watching. And really what those catalysts all come down to is these media giants thinking strategically about exploiting their assets and increasing revenue and also profitability. The couple things that I'll point to is the fact that Warner Brothers Discovery, they're going to launch a combined version of their two sets of apps, both the the Warner Brothers and the Discovery assets. That's expected to be a catalyst, this idea that streamlining makes sense. Um, They also are bringing their content in fast channels. Those are free ad-supported channels to launch on Roku and Tubi. So finding more ways to make money from those assets. And then Showtime Paramount, they are combining uh, all of those assets into one place, both when it comes to the linear TV content as well as the streaming platform. So a couple things to watch there. I mean, those are a lot of catalysts and those are fundamental stories, Alex, to to, to Julia's point. So based upon your reporting, where are those compelling storylines to Julia's point? Which companies stand to benefit the most? And is it tied mostly to streaming or is it more to broadband? What exactly is it? Yeah, that's a great question, Dom. Look, there are two camps about what's going on here. The first camp, and this is if you ask executives at Warner Brothers Discovery, this is what they'll tell you. That what's going on here is that the market has realized that uh, the general narrative of getting subscribers, streaming subscribers at all costs, spend as much money as we can, get as many streaming subscribers as we can. That game is over. And the market is now starting to appreciate that Warner Brothers Discovery and other media stocks were oversold at the end of last year. And now that they are Uh, revising their companies to revolve around profit and revenue, sort of more baseline media metrics, Uh, these stocks are going to come back up and there's going to be some multiple uh, uh, valuation increase here. The other story is that maybe things are not so bad on the streaming front. I mean, Netflix just announced that they added 7.7 million subscribers. That blew out the number of subscribers they were supposed to add. Netflix is saying to the street, we're not even going to forecast subscribers anymore because we want you to look at other things because subscriber A doesn't equal subscriber B, depending on where they are in the world. Nevertheless, that stock moved up when they they blew out subscriber numbers. So it's also possible that the market actually isn't fully convinced of the legacy media narrative, and they're still judging these companies on streaming subscribers. We'll see as the year goes. All right. So, Jeff Kilberg, let's take everything that Julia said and Alex said and put rubber to the road. You're an investor. You're a trader. Where are the best opportunities? Well, Dom, I think Alex brings up a great point. Certainly, when you're looking at media stocks, you are focused on subscriptions. But Julia really talks about sentiment. And this is really a congruent line, Dom. Think about all the NASDAQ stocks that fell out of favor. They were decimated in 2022. They are fine. The laggard theme all of a sudden becoming the love theme. But the media stocks, I'm looking at Warner Brothers Discovery, which is fascinating to me that they're finally coming to the table with some content. They're going to try and take on Disney in the Marvel series. They're slotted with five new films for 2023. So I get excited about that stock. It'll be interesting to see if it has the ability to move back up. This is a $37 billion company that was down 67% last year. So it's kind of come back, but nonetheless, I think there's more room to run. But the other stock that I find fascinating is Comcast, the parent company. We have seen just a lot of emotion in this stock as well. But again, you look at the way they're doing things, it seems like they're poised to move higher. So I'm bullish on both of those stocks, but Comcast specifically is interesting because Morningstar just put out a list. There's 128 stocks on this Morningstar list of undervalued companies. It was in the top 10. So it's highlighting the fact, Dom, that there is cash flow and fundamentals 
a reason to own here. So it may move back up to its 52-week high. So both of those stocks, I think you can jump in despite the fact they've had tremendous 2023 games. And really quickly, Jeff, do you own any of them? I don't at the moment. I'm still okay. trying to feel out. Maybe selling some puts. I want to collect some premium options and get put to this name because you're being paid handsomely okay. for taking the risk of owning these stocks. There's the disclosure. Thank you very much, Julie Borson, Alex Sherman, Jeff Kilberg for the thoughts there. We appreciate it. That does it for us here on The Exchange. And there is, by the way, the Tyler Cam. Tyler Matheson and Morgan Brennan getting ready for Power Lunch. I'm going to see them in just a couple minutes after this quick break. Thanks very much. Have a nice weekend. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 